Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the artist formerly known as Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is Bunga Cast. It's Friday, the 7th of September. I'm here in Sao Paulo, and we are also coming to you from uh, the southern, southeastern elements, regions of the United Kingdom, as it still just about is. Uh, Philip Cunliffe, hello. Hi. Um, can you see France from your house? Not from the house, but you can see France on a clear day from the coastline where I live, yeah. Okay, well, you know, uh, looking longingly to civilization, as Phil does, I'm dreaming of uh, a blue, you know, bl- blue, blue, and go- golden stars in a in a ring, holding hands. Yeah, in unity. and if everyone and if uh, wearing um, wearing turtlenecks to keep out the cold from the mm, coming winter. Indeed, George, you're you're in the north relative to to Phil. Is it even colder? Um, I'm in London, which isn't part of the UK. It's just completely different. And we have our own kind of French um, quarter, if you will, in Kensington area. But I can't see that from where I live in the in the northeast. Um, no, completely different. Um, we have a different climate here than what Phil has, a different um, different cuisine, different kind of social, political mores as well. So it's a, like two different countries. Mm. No, I, I, I mean... I don't think that was ironic even. Um, so this is an alpha bonus bonus. But before that, um, and before we get on to all your wonderful questions, comments, and criticisms, uh, are you already turning the heating on in the UK? And where's that gas coming from? Um, no, not turning the heating on until until December to stick it to Putin. Like if mild hypothermia or some frostbite in the fingers is absolutely the price to pay for civilization for freedom um so no i'm just wearing simultaneously all the all the clothes that i own i mean why not why would you not do this um i think if anything else just smacks of um a spirit of appeasement if you will layers for ukraine yeah that's layering for ukraine i think that's the politics du jour um more seriously than kind of small consumer initiatives uh zelensky's just said i think yesterday that he thinks that the West should preemptively strike against Russia to to inhibit its nuclear capabilities. I don't even know if such a strike would even be possible other than the kind of total destruction and annihilation of Russia. So, Phil, I mean, is it time to cut Zelensky loose? I mean, I don't know. Is that Should that be the, the response at this stage? I know we've kind of wanted to defend Ukrainian sovereignty, obviously, and not just play this kind of spheres of influence game, but... Um, it, I don't know. Is it, is the tail wagging the dog now? Uh, what's going on? Um, well, you ask me like any of this is like within my remit of being able to politically resolve or <laughs> at least analytically we... <laughs> or saying we, you know, we, um, as if we're in the game of deciding whether or not to support Zelensky. I mean, so at least I, you know, have co- I've consistently made the case that um, we shouldn't be involved in a proxy war in Ukraine, and that that position is consistent with um, Ukraine fighting for its independence itself and for its own sovereignty and expelling, you know, expelling the Russian invasion. Um, so that wouldn't, you know, that position wouldn't have changed. That I still don't think the West should be stoking a forever war in Ukraine the way it is. I think. You know, with Zelensky calling for a preemptive strike. So he has got to, you know, with Russia kind of engaging in nuclear saber rattling, the stronger that Ukraine's counteroffensive, you know, the more kind of territory Ukraine takes back. 
you've got two options, right? You can kind of um, big yourself up and talk about kind of the uh, tremendous achievements of your armed forces, the forbearance of people under occupation, the fact that you're going to liberate more territory, encouraging people to rise up behind enemy lines, um, encouraging Russians to kind of overthrow, you know, Putin. And they've done some of that, you know, they've done some of that. Um, for instance, you know, the Zelensky played up to ethnic minorities who are bearing the brunt of um, the new conscription drive in Russia. Right. But then, you know, the other option is to kind of play to not to your citizens, but to people abroad and to Western allies abroad. And also to, you know, kind of suggest that they should engage in potentially kind of suicidal action on your behalf. And Zelensky also seems to have opted for that, too with the, uh, you know, kind of proposal that the West launches a preemptive strike on Russia. Though he didn't say a preemptive nuclear strike, you know, but that's weaselly because the only kind of successful strike, a preemptive strike on Russia's nuclear capability would have to be a nuclear one. Yeah. And even then, I mean, you know, kind of Russia has second strike capability, so it just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, within its own terms, it just seems to be kind of... Um, Zelensky kind of um, having been fully absorbed into uh, thinking in terms of a multilateral kind of conflict and thinking as a de facto, as he, as they themselves have said, as de facto members of NATO, rather than thinking of um, of their own interest, I think, because it doesn't seem to so, me that Ukraine's interests would be served by generalized nuclear war. No, right. Um, I, just to throw another bit of information in here, George, that I think it was revealed in The Intercept yesterday that, um, according to leaked documents, the U.S. expected Ukraine to crumble really quickly and just to be completely overrun, and that then they were surprised, actually, by the Ukrainians' resistance, both in terms of the armed forces and, you know, um, civilians and so on. And that actually is a piece of information which doesn't fit with a story that I had built up in my head, which is one that, well, the NATO had always wanted to kind of draw Russia in and that, and certainly once Russia had invaded, that the idea would always be to uh, play this out as far as possible, that, you know, to create this proxy war, to um, get Russia entangled in a quagmire in Ukraine and draw it on as long as possible, precisely to weaken Russia. But if they thought that Ukraine would be overrun immediately. That's a bit of information which seems to run counter to, to that narrative, right? Yeah, no, it definitely does. I mean, I guess the whether it was an overestimation of Russian military um, capacity or an underestimation of Ukrainian defense capacity, I'm not I'm not sure. But I think, you know, that was that that would be the reasonable expectation before this i mean it's it's now been going on for i think a lot longer than anybody would have predicted at, at the start um this conflict so yeah i mean what what does this mean now for the for the american response i mean they're they're you know sucked into this as long as it as long as it goes on it's going to be a continual like shadow boxing you know we're getting into kind of cuban missile crisis territory with the Americans saying like, what happens if if um, Russia uses um, nuke, you know, nuclear weapons of some sort? Then NATO is going to just destroy the whole of Russia, or maybe it'd just be easier to, to just launch a nuclear strike on on the Kremlin and just take 
Putin out and then that destroys Russia. I mean, yeah, they've got, because of that miscalculation, they've been now sucked into a much more dangerous situation, I think, or a situation which is objectively much more dangerous for the whole of the world because now we're having serious conversations about what would happen in um, various kind of nuclear scenarios, which is yeah. Um, yeah. The surprising. Nihilistic, the nihilistic option of what, what if we just didn't exist at all? And that would certainly solve this problem. It would um, solve a lot of a lot of everybody's problems, yeah. I think. Um, um, but it, in fact, but it there wouldn't be any problems. But it, it does seem that um, no one in, I mean, none of the three main actors in this, I mean, Russia, NATO and Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian government, are interested at this stage in kind of suing for peace or finding some sort of armistice at this stage. It would seem that the Ukrainian um, pushback recently would have put them in a position where now they'd be willing to. But I guess because they have NATO backing and they want to keep that flow of arms and money coming, they want to see that out and, and see whether they can push Russian forces all the way back, I guess. Phil? Yeah, well, you hear, I mean, you know, the other element of it is you very rarely hear about Ukrainian losses, Right. Um, in terms of the advances, you know, how um, how costly has the counteroffensive been? And it's actually very hard to find information on that. It's not um, it's not as readily reported as the collapse of, um, you know, Russia's front line is. So, you know, given that they're they need in order to maintain momentum, obviously, they need kind of uh, complete access to the Western Armory, even to the point that they've exhausted the Western Armory. You know, there were reports about the fact that um, Western states, even the US itself, is running out of the equipment that it's pumping to Ukraine and it needs to replace it. So, I mean, in that context, it's, um, you know, it's clearly, um, you know, you can see the element of the proxy war there. But more than that, you know, Zelensky recently also said there's no chance of um, negotiations with Russia, as long as Putin is in charge. And that seems to definitively escalate the Ukrainian war effort or to make regime change in Moscow the condition of the Ukraine of Ukrainian success. And that seems to be so, you know, so outrageously beyond the interests of um, of defending Ukraine's national interests or recovering Ukrainian territory or sovereignty. That that seems to me to be, um, you know, to show that Zelensky is um, kind of far, has kind of assumed, you know, perhaps, you know, kind of uh, entering megalomaniacal territory. Mm. It sounds like of... something Gaddafi would say, like if you strip away the names and it's like, OK, this country gets invaded. Its president who's not very democratic, um, says, we're, you know, we're not we're going to resist. And the, our end game is regime change in, you know, in in. Within the great power, right? It sounds like something. It sounds like some kind of mad thing that um, Gaddafi would throw in there as a sort of bargaining yeah, chip or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, but I mean, so Zelensky is, you know, he's kind of a pop, you know, typical kind of populist Democrat, essentially. Um, and he was, you know, kind of his star was definitely waning before the invasion, and like you say, now to kind of um, to bluster in a way that somebody like Gaddafi would, it's really striking. But also makes it so diff, you know, like so difficult to envisage a scenario in which you could just even have discussion of a ceasefire, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, I guess we'll we'll park this unless someone wants to say anything um, additionally. We were going to talk about the North Stream and um, the sabotage on that, um, but uh, I guess not make. Oh, I'd, I'd prepared so much on Nordstrom. I'd done all research right. into the history of the upmarket. 
American um, department store. I thought we were going to be discussing that for for forty five minutes. So yeah, sorry, I, 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 Nordstrom. I think I was yeah, I was eating at the same time. I was like Nordstrom, and then you're like, oh yeah, Nordstrom. Yeah, no, right. Um, bought a great um, cashmere jumper there once. A pipeline there. Once. A pipeline. <laughs> um, anyway, True, in fact. Uh, yeah uh let, let's move on to uh the the main matter at hand which is your questions and criticisms over the past month and a half or so um so just going back to the last uh alpha bonus bonus we did which was the september's edition episode 289 um i'm glad to report that kenneth smith was spared out of pity um so a friend of his had threatened him with death should phil mention lockdown again again we're not really entirely sure why kenneth smith was the one who was targeted but i guess you know you kill who you can um sacrifices are needed so we're delighted to hear you're still amongst us kenneth um and that despite your friend's mercy we will still try to keep phil on a tight lockdown leash phil um we'll lock him down we'll lock him down down on discussion of lockdown exactly um, Alex McAuliffe says, um, I guess now I have to write the great Chinese novel so that Phil will see the light. Um, I mean, this is a reference and this will come back up. So we'll, we'll come it's to actually this about, it's about, very... about this idea. Hang on. Just to explain what this refers to. This is the discussion which has now been ongoing for a little while um, between all of us here, uh, both people speaking and listening um, about whether China could ever offer and, and be a kind of beacon on the hill or offer a model for civilization in the way that the United States has for the past hundred odd years. I'm just going to say, I think it's a great response because, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think Alex McAuliffe kind of... Um... Uh, sees the point of what I was trying to put across that you need like a great Chinese novel, basically um, the same way that you got a great American novel. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, I, we, he actually continues saying, uh, and George needs to put his grudges into some kind of nice structure, like a chart. Um, Alex, don't encourage George, please. Um, DTC. But isn't, there, isn't there already a, the great Chinese novel, the story of the stone? I haven't read it, but I know of it. In like a million, I, I, can, I don't what, think he it, means that it? whether or not there's actually great Chinese literature. I think the point is that there is the same that you know that there is kind of um, Chinese literature that has the same kind of iconic status at a global level that great American literature does. Which, with all due respect to you know the genuinely fantastic achievements of Chinese civilization over the centuries, I don't think it does. Partly because obviously not as many people read or speak Mandarin cumulatively across the world as there are people who read and speak English. I mean, I guess Lucian is good as well. Just check. I have actually read some Lucian, but partly it's because there's a tradition in, I mean, they're not saying this is all Chinese literature, but of like doing the characters in water on the, the street so that it all just, it just evaporates and fades away. So Yeah. I don't know what my point I don't know is. What comment comment on ephemerality? I, I don't know. Anyway, there's yeah, probably goodness. there probably is some Chinese proto hippie setting out um, across across their great land, um, ending up on a mountain, lost somewhere um, in 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 uh, an attempt to write the great Chinese novel. Um, but anyway, we don't need more Kerouac, Chinese or American. Anyway, um, so uh, DTC just on this theme as well. Uh, DTC says, Phil, 90% of the time I agree with whatever you're saying, but this whole China will never be X, I, China will never be this model, China will never be America, uh, is really an impossible statement as far as predicting history goes. You know, you might say that in a certain time frame, but not over, you know, just indefinitely somehow. So I feel like I should protect my, kind of defend myself here. You know, when I'm saying never, 
I don't mean that, you know, China kind of um, achieving the same cultural and political status as the US violates the laws of physics. Obviously not. That's not the way I mean never. All I mean it, um, and perhaps, you know, perhaps there's a, there's too much of, um, you know, getting carried away in the cut and thrust of a discussion with Alex, who provokes, always provokes his interlocutors, perhaps. He tempts them into overreaching never. certain of their claims. Never. But what I meant was with never, you know, in the foreseeable future, which I think is, you know, a reasonable time frame to talk about. So never doesn't mean for all of human history. It just means in the mid-range foreseeable future, which is to say, you know, to the middle, let's say to the middle of the century. Middle okay. of which century? This century. <laughs> this century. <laughs> okay, okay, parking, parking mm, that. That's a bit of a short never. I mean, you should be a bit bolder. Like China isn't like America, country of immigrants, like trying to build, trying to build that. China is not the same project. But anyway. No, you know, but if you're... you had, if you had a democratic revolution in China, um, you know, then yeah. I think genuinely things might look uh, tremendously different. And because that revolution is, um, you know, not within, uh, you know, is clearly, you know, very remote at the moment, I think it's legitimate to say never. Okay, um, leaving that to one side, it will, will no doubt return to that um, at some point. So um, lots of discussion about um, what obviously proved a very intriguing episode um, for ourselves as well. Uh, episodes 286 and 287, What Was Communism? with Branko Milanovic. Um, so just running through a couple of things here, MF Madge points us uh, in the direction of an interesting sounding book called Europe's Growth Champion by M. Piatowski, uh, who's another World Bank economist. Um, and uh, apparently Milanovic might be relying on some char chapters there, which argues that Poland's post-1989 successes relied on the communists sweeping away of the old feudal order through lane reform. I'm not sure what lane reform means, if anybody can clarify that for me. Um, but I guess that's that's an interesting. I think point. land reform, maybe uh, not like yeah. not changing lanes on roads. Land reform. I think it yeah. means building, yeah. you know, it's, land and building lanes. You know, pouring it's, tarmac. It's for precisely roads. not staying in your lane. So it is kind of lane right. reform as well. Yeah, I did, I wasn't thinking laterally there. I was just like, well, I I don't understand what that means. Anyway, yes, uh, I think that's that's true. And you know, Poland is probably in by Milanovic's calculations one of the few countries who can say genuinely they have. Um, seen a successful 30 years since the fall of communism, um, something which uh, definitely uh, isn't the case. It's certainly the kind of further east and south you go. Um, Lionel Boyd Johnson, um, the really interesting comment here. Um, Marx, Lenin, etc., all understood that there would be a reaction towards any popular move towards communism. I don't think there was an objective recognition that communism has been fully achieved in any country, let alone in the world. So Branko's point that Marx thought that once communism was achieved, it would become the new status quo baseline, uh, there, that there would be no going back once communism had been achieved. Well, that's making the assertion that communism had been achieved uh, in the form of the Soviet Union and associated states. I know uh, it digresses into a no true Scotsman argument about what communism truly is, um, and that's a bit out of scope, but come on, no one can objectively argue that the USSR was actually the final stage of communism. Uh, that Marx was gesturing towards. Um, I mean, I Phil, don't you, know. You, well, I'm not Phil, sure. You've written about this in your book, Lenin Lives, in some way. So, um, well, uh, but only to say, I don't think that Branko is making that case. Um, I, I don't think he was making the case that the USS, I mean, you know, the USSR didn't say that it was communist. That's why it described itself as actually existing socialism, um, you know, and famously, um, 
uh, Khrushchev said that they were going to achieve communism by the 1980s. And once that failed to deliver, it was quietly kind of shelved in favor of actually existing socialism under Brezhnev. Anyway, the point being that they didn't say it. And I don't think um, Branko was suggesting that they did. Yeah, so, no, I think Branko was arguing that, you know, this is the surprising thing that there was this regression, but it was regression from a point of, you know, actually existing socialism and not from some achieved communism. Um Lionel Boy Johnson continues. Um, again, this is returning to, to the China point. Maybe we shouldn't have discussed it, but I, I want to give voice to this comment. People will, for the foreseeable future, continue to buy into the American dream and prefer that over what China is selling. But Phil is surely not arguing that desperately impoverished people under the threat of imminent torture or even beheading would jump on whatever transport out of town they could secure. Sure, middle-class Okinawans aren't sneaking to U.S. bases, uh, but we regularly see instances in the news of people sneaking to the wheels of planes, leaving Lagos, Johannesburg, etc., without even knowing the destination. I get the point that Phil's trying to make, but please think of a different scenario, because to my ear, it simply sounds like a surprising lack of understanding or sad distance from the actual suffering in the world today. And if the point is that China is not, quote-unquote, selling their model well enough, then why is the West so worried about the rise of China? If it's an accepted fact that their model is a failure or not as attractive, then why rush to enact the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for instance? And why was there such a panic about its failure? I think that, in fact, there, there is a recognition that while it's not the model of choice at the moment, success breeds success, and success breeds admirers and copycats, China is providing an alternative model that will indeed likely become desirable for many countries. Um, we don't want to repeat what we've already discussed about China not necessarily providing um you know, so much of a model. But I think the interesting point that um, that is made there by Lionel is this idea that um, that the West is so, you know, the West is so afraid of China's rise. Yeah, Why? but then, I'm, well, first of all, I'm not sure that they are. Um, I think it's, you know, kind of uh, a Cold War scenario is very convenient um, for many people, right? Not only for kind of um, political elites with nothing else left, but also for, a whole swathe of um, counter-elites, if you want, who, you know, kind of now feel vindicated about the arguments around signing up to free trade or the fact that America, the Western industrial base has been hollowed out in favor of China. Um, arguments, you know, that kind of that are being, that were made by one of, our, one of the guests that came on, Michael Lint, um, that are made, increasingly made by populists and also made by... Um, you know, kind of, uh, say, blue labor um, arguments here in the UK. So um, I think, you know, the idea that China is a threat is very kind of intellectually appealing, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a threat because it's attractive. And if countries are gravitating towards China because of, you know, they see it to be in their economic or security interests, that's still different from whether or not their citizens um watch Chinese, you know, kind of buy Chinese goods, um, watch Chinese, uh, I mean, they do. watch Chinese TV. Well, I mean, I suppose consumer, you know, kind of how they consume, you know, like it's whether or not it's Coca-Cola or, um, you know, kind Xiaomi of uh, Nike or yeah, whatever it might be, whether or not they kind of know Chinese, um, you know, kind of pop stars and actors and whether or not they have family in China that they, you know, kind of, or they have relatives who emigrated to China. Um, so I think that's a separate thing. 
whether state elites see advantage in bandwagoning with China compared to whether or not citizens see it as an appealing model. Those are two separate things. But I take Lionel's point, you know, that, you know, people kind of jump onto planes and in Lagos without knowing where they're going. Um, yes, uh, let's move on. Um, Andrea um, points out, uh, I find it always frankly puzzling to hear about the necessity for growth between Marxists without talking about the value form or how growth is produced and calculated in a logic spawned by the by economic liberal thought. Yes, uh, Milanovic talked a little bit about the fact that commodification of already existing transactions and services makes it look like there's growth while things are actually growing or actually becoming worse. Um, but still, the statement is left there as if this doesn't contradict the discussion about the necessity for GDP growth everywhere. GDP growth calculations can capture the bettering of life conditions badly needed, especially in low-income countries. But the same is not at all obvious for high-income countries. Moreover, I get that there will be no revolution tomorrow or the day after the, that. And yet, using the capitalist logic of growth um, of in, in the value form to reduce inequality... Uh, to use that as a Marxist recipe feels quite stale. Can we think of the possibility of growing human potential and resources with a logic that breaks with the value form and promotes the idea, promotes that idea as a break with the existing system? Otherwise, why would anyone call themselves communist or Marxist? Um, so I, I just wanted to, to take a first shot at this. We've discussed this in the past, actually. I think someone asked a question, um, you know, would there still be growth under communism? And it depends how technical you want to get. If you want to talk about expanded production, um, that there will be more new needs and that there will be the means to satisfy those needs, then absolutely. If we mean GDP growth, then no. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's important to make that distinction. Um, and I think Andrea, Andrea does. I mean, Andrea isn't, isn't making a degrowth argument in, in the sense of um, having less production. Right. Um, I think I think that's pretty clear. So I, it's, it, I think it's important to bear those two in mind, I, though. I think where this comment is pushing at the wrong door is is kind of I don't think Branko Milanovic is sees himself or defines himself as a Marxist. Um, and I don't think he holds necessarily, you know, hopes of yeah. overcoming the value form. I don't know. I, so I, I nor do know. I think he was talking about growth as, you know, I think he made very clear that even the kind of, um, you know, the so-called global middle class is poor by comparison to um, average living standards in the West. So I think when he was making the growth, he was making the case for growth, not as the solution to the problems of advanced countries, but as a, just a very basic material requisite for, you know, kind of enhancing um, life opportunity throughout the world and not just in very poor countries, but even in kind of middle income countries as well. So I think he, you know, I think to that extent, he would probably concur with Andrea thinking in terms of growth for the majority of humanity, not necessarily for, um, you know, that it off that it's kind of uh, the most, you know, GD, kind of blind GDP growth being the most important thing for uh, members of industrialized countries. I mean, I, George, I don't know if you want to come in on this, but I, I guess it would be interesting exploring, you know, what what growth does, what GDP growth does in, in the kind of richest tranche of countries um, and whether it actually leads to an improvement to living standards. I guess it, it is questionable that because the form that growth often takes today, um, precisely because it's a commodification of, you know, already existing um, activities that that it might not do. Anyway, that's something worth exploring.
actually, this does make me think that even taking the most sympathetic view of degrowthers, um, I think all that they do ultimately is register um, a recognition that of the fact that growth in advanced countries seems to provide very little. Um, of course, they ignore the fact that growth rates are very, have been very low for um, the whole period since the, the global financial crisis. But I think they do register that. But all but I think this just proves the point that we've made about, about degrowth um, in the past, that it's just an ideological reflection of low growth capitalism rather than, rather than being yeah. somehow a, a, like a radical proposal for reforming or changing capitalism. Yeah, um, I think that's right. And, you know, just to kind of qualify my previous point that I said, I mean, if you think about what's needed in, you know, in Western countries, um, you know, like it requires a thrusting modernization project. There's no way to get around the fact that it requires lots of infrastructure spending. If you wanted to build out roads and hospitals, new power, nuclear power stations, new housing, better quality housing stock, you know, new kind of uh, if you wanted to go the green route, kind of new friend, you know, kind of new uh, carbon friendly trains and trams, whatever, you know, that is going to be, you know, kind of a significantly larger outlay and economic expansion and economic growth than we've seen for a long time. Yeah. Although it might not actually provide growth, you know, in terms of the GDP numbers, but it's something that is needed. I think I, I'm sure I'm sure it would. It would probably thrust GDP growth actually quite forward. I'm not sure it would, because if it, the state is doing it, then, you know, that doesn't count uh, necessarily as um, you know, it's kind of value, new value production. It would, and so it would on, show but... up. It would show up in the figures. Anyway, okay. Um, we, maybe that's a whole discussion we should have uh, on a on a podcast about degrowth at some point. Phil um, has already, you know, hinted at what the next question is, which is um, one referring to episode two eight eight feudal limpets. Bunga Goes Royal, so our episode on uh, Queen Elizabeth II's death, which was surprisingly popular. Um, I was like, are we really doing an episode on the Queen? And and we did, and um, you all liked it. So um, who knows? Maybe maybe my, my judgment Secret is off. Marcus. Maybe your judgment is off. I don't know. Um, but uh, Eli started off by saying, Phil, stop calling things you like thrusting. Um, as a, Don't use thru- thrusting as a, as a term of, of uh, approbation. Phil, did you could you care to? I'll take yourself? Eli's point on board. Sure, yeah. <laughs> okay, thrusting on to the next question. Um, Elias Braun says uh, the Queen as the carpet from the Big Lebowski is definitely the best take I've heard since her death. That is, she's this unimportant thing that nonetheless held the room together or held the nation together. Um, it's a good similar- take. What? It's a good take. I mean, using it as the Lebowski is a good point. Yeah. Who said that? I think Alex said that, right? Uh, no, I don't know. Elias said it. You dumb asses. Oh, I thought uh, that was no, his I reading. Somebody... That was his reading of our. It's of his our reading discussion. of what we were saying. Yeah, I thought somebody said it during the actual discussion. One of the three of us. Mm, and maybe know. I'm misremembering. Anyway, it's a false memory. Um, similarly, uh, Richard Mishuk, uh, who writes in from Quebec, says, I was struck by your observation of the role the Queen plays in the hearts and minds of so many Brits, in particular her constancy since the creation of post-imperial Britain in the aftermath of the Second World War. The negative stories about King Chuck, <laughs> um, King Charles, already out today in The Guardian and The New York Times um, are already there, and I suspect he will not share in the popularity of his mother. It will be interesting to see what, if any, consequences this will have on the fragility of the British state. Um, this is all stuff that we discussed in the episode, but it's good to, to I guess, to underline that as a, as a 
crucial question. Uh, Alex McAuliffe says that it, it occurred to me while listening to this, specifically George's comment about the monarchy as a reminder of social democracy, which, yeah, it is a very good point, um, that actually Elizabeth was the queen that reigned through all of England's Labour government. I hadn't seen that remarked upon by any of the pundits sounding off about her ties to colonialism, empire, the bourgeoisie, etc. And it's probably significant in her status as a figure for all of England. Um, that's very good. Well put. Um, Andrew Mountford comments that this is a fascinating episode. I do think it's clear that the British bourgeoisie was and is more malleable than many assume, and that as long as capital flows, the principles and systems we associate with classical liberalism are expendable. That said, I have more sympathy with the left's attack on monarchy than you guys. The monarchy doesn't stand for the popular interests, and it's the left's job to point that out, because that's the reality. If people do have illusions in the monarchy, then they are essentially wrong. This may not be because they are innately stupid, but it's nevertheless the case that they are acting against their interests in bolstering or having faith in an institution, which is an impediment to socialism. It may not be the sole or main impediment, but that doesn't mean it's insignificant. It appears to me that one function of the continued existence of the monarchy is to obscure Britain's revolutionary past, to erase the British bourgeoisie's radical history, to imply continuity and to downplay the English Revolution, among other things. I wonder if you'd agree that it plays this useful function for the present ruling class. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I would say, I mean, I don't, you know, we're not, um, uh, it's not that I, you know, I mean, that we're, um, that we have sympathy for the monarchy. It's more the point, at least what I was trying to get across, I can't speak for George, but what I was getting try, trying to get across was that the usual way in which the left accounts for um, the place of the monarchy is in terms of backwardness. And in accounting for it in terms of backwardness, they miss what makes it, what gives it kind of a popular grip in the contemporary moment. Not least, and not to mention as well, the contrast, which is very, you know, very specific to the contemporary era, the contrast with um, elected politicians who are held in much worse regard than they have been in the entirety of the post-war period. So, you know, it's that's an important point to maintain when discussing the monarchy. You can't just kind of um, uh, be one of these kinds of exasperated Republicans who, um, you know, kind of just vent their frustration with the mulish attachment of the masses to, to the monarchy. It's something, I think, which has to be understood and even maybe understood with sympathy, which doesn't imply sympathy for the institution itself or indeed for the individuals associated with it. It's like the heart of a heartless nation, in a way. This there, the, you ha there has to be a sort of a starting point that the monarchy is a, it, in Britain, I think, is a projection of of other, of other things. It's it's not, I mean, and I think that's right that it's not the the, the genuine feeling towards Queen Elizabeth II, which there of which there was quite a lot. Is not this hankering for an ancient past, but it's a projection of the public support for the network of modern, specifically modern post-war institutions that gave British national life content during the period of her reign. I think that's the way to, to, to sort of, to frame that, that it is specifically modern and not ancient. Um, and so that's kind of read, reads it against the, the Nairn approach. This point about the, does the monarchy erase the, or like hide the British bourgeoisie's radical history? I think it probably does. Like it would be um, difficult. I mean, we've got, we've got a King Charles, like, that's you've got to be pretty bold or you've got to be pretty confident that, you know, your kid, Charles, when he becomes king, is going to go the way of the second one, not the first one. Um, so 
there must be a sense where yeah that that this does play play a role of like yeah making us forget about the english revolution and that's always a useful thing for the ruling class to make us not think about the times when uh, things when they took power because that makes us think well there could be another similar sort of transition yeah. to to uh to something even even better even better than cromwell yeah, I mean, wow. I've made the point that I think British institutional continuity, you know, leaving aside the kind of Nairn discussion about, you know, whether there's British backwardness or not, which we're going to come on to in just a second. Um, but that the reality of that continuity, I think, does create a certain consciousness that limits the imagination that things could be different to what they are. Um, unlike, you know, I think countries who have a much more tumultuous past, which I would say is the, the vast majority of the world. Um, it creates a sort of different outlook on on history and and the future. Uh, I think one problem with I guess with the left's attacks on monarchy is that it often conforms to a certain uh, kind of left liberal idea, which is not a revolutionary one, which is just a narrow anti-monarchical one. Like this is backwards. Let's get rid of this without looking at the whole system of um, of privileges and and whatnot that that come along with the monarchy. So, for example, um, many will want to get rid of the monarchy, but have nothing to say about the existence of the House of Lords. Um, and so, the kind of radical democratic strain in that sometimes is is fairly limited or neutered. Um, to c- continue on with the the whole discussion we had about uh, I mean, the I, Nairn I, thesis, I would go a bit further, and this maybe sets up the next comment as well. You know, I think for there is there was a strong undercurrent of um, middle classes who were, you know, liberal middle classes who kept their heads down, but were, you know, kind of um, exasperated and disgusted with the public affection and reverence um, that was, you know, visible during the um, during the funeral. And I think from their point of view, like, um, you know, it's uh, it is a class thing. Um, Elizabeth was popular with the vast majority of uh, of people, strong support, you know, among the broad kind of um, the broad British working class as a whole. So at the union level, not just in England. Um, and that's partly why they dislike her and why they kind of like the idea of a republic is because they know a republic would involve lots of room for them to send letters to the Guardian, um, citizens, juries that they would probably get nominated to. Um, they would be able to kind of, you know, sound off on chat boards and messages and so on. And they would feel uh, that their weight would be, you know, they would have a greater imprint on the state through the process of uh, republic establishing a republic in the contemporary circumstances where there is no organized labor movement to speak of. And I think that's partly, you know, part of the um, affection for the idea of a republic today as well. I think that might be overstated, though. I haven't lived in the UK for a while, but um, there's plenty of provincial, if... provincial middle classes who still love the Queen, and there's sections of the working class, and especially in Scotland, who who hate the, the Queen. Majority, and the, monarchy, the majority so... of the working class like the Queen. Okay. I think if we, if we, if there's we also swathes see... of the middle class who love the Queen and love the monarchy too, as well. You know, don't be overly metropolitan here and look at it from the perspective of, you know, yeah, kind of London. No, no, London sure, but I'm just saying, you know, class. I'm saying there's a class element to the, you know, there's an anti-working class prejudice in the hostility to popular monarchism as well. I'm not saying that this is, um, you know, I'm not saying that this kind of uh, subterranean um, bourgeois idea of a republic is what Andrew Manfred is indulging in. I'm saying it's a political reality in Britain that the reason they would like a republic is because they will have more scope within it. George. Yeah, I mean, I think if we were to see or when we do see a mass working class Republican movement 
be interesting to see where these um these people feel is feels having a go out to see where they stand in relation to that. Indeed. Um, right. So getting into and getting back into this question of British backwardness about whether Britain had a bourgeois revolution or it didn't, the whole Nair and Anderson thesis, which we discussed in this episode, SeaWorld or Bust says the following, the British ruling class developed along fundamentally different lines than those created by later, more mature bourgeois revolutions. And it seems equally true that this shaped its contemporary ruling class and perhaps relatedly its political economy. Even at the time, Nairn's argument for the common market seems to me to have been less to do with his particular perception of British backwardness and more with the belief that the nation state itself, regardless of its character, was increasingly irrelevant or less relevant to the global order, which I likewise think was essentially correct. The degree to which this was overdetermined perhaps remains an open question. Nairn's error was in believing that embracing this trend, this trend towards, um, you know, expanding the boundaries of, of political communities uh, towards the common market and so on, that, that his mistake was in believing that this represented fertile ground for the revolutionary left. While it may be more or less fair to regard the new left as having been at the vanguard of capitalist ideology in the 20th century, Nairn isn't wrong to characterize labor, then as now, as essentially its rear guard, and I don't imagine it would have ultimately provided any more fertile ground for working class interests. Either way, while Phil may be right that Britain at that point was more modern than Nairn gave it credit for, it was arguably precisely this modernity that made the economic transition that Britain saw in the late 20th century inevitable. That is to say, uh, probably deindustrialization, joining the European community, and so on. Um, to what degree that modernity was always inherent to the British state versus the result of a particular modernizing project seems to me to be rather beside the point. Um, I don't know if you guys want to have a have a stab at this. Um, I, I I think it's kind of I think it's kind of correct in terms of the reading of Nairn. Like he was politically wrong, but maybe analytically. Uh, more correct than I'm not than sure Phil it's, gave it credit it for. Is, I'm not sure it is right though, because my, you know, his support for Scottish independence and the breakup of the union um suggests that he did see, you know, kind of it's not that he saw the nation state as um inimical compared to regional kind of integration, but he saw the new nation states as better, you know, better vehicles for this uh, for this economic integration. So I'm not quite sure it's the right reading of um of Nairn's account. So I'm sure we have more to say on this uh, because Paul Brewer has a comment uh, on this in this regard. I see Nairn's analysis as part of a general critique of Britain that started in the aftermath of Suez, but only gathered real force in the 1960s after de Gaulle's known to the common to Britain's common market entry. The sense that there was something fundamentally wrong with Britain, that a change of direction was required, really took hold during the quote-unquote sick man of Europe days of, 90, of the 1970s. And the explanation that what was holding the country back were all the feudal holdovers at the apex of which stood the monarchy. And that was an, an, a, a kind of understanding, an argument that was bound to appeal to some. Um, it would be interesting to do a show on the reinterpretations of the English Revolution, uh, Paul suggests, uh, reinterpretations during the 20th and 21st centuries, even though that might not be part of Bungacast's remit. Uh, we'll be the judge of that, Paul. Um, um, although this might change, indeed, if, if British politics change. And actually, that might be a, a good point. If uh, uh, Britain po British politics radically changes, it might be a good uh, time to look backwards. Um, all of this is to say, Paul continues, 
that Nairn's critique is perhaps too specific to its time and place to have the kind of general validity people try, have tried to give it. This is an occupational hazard of analysis with a historical basis, so I wouldn't hold it against Nairn. Um, and Paul just continues by saying, is there room for an archaic neoliberalism episode looking at the early beginnings of neoliberalism, for example, the 1970 Tory manifesto? Um, that might indeed be interesting. We're due, I think, to do a discussion on uh, this big new book on on uh, neoliberalism uh, by Gary Gersel, which I have sitting on my shelf and um, have only just leafed through. So we'll have to we'll have to park that one. But I'm I'm sure it's a, a, a topic that we will come back to. Yeah, it's a good one, and I think even you know even well, I think also the uh, suggestion of kind of the historiography of the English Revolution and how it's evolved over time. You know, it's fairly specialist and perhaps even technical, but I think you know it could be genuinely useful and interesting. The only thing yeah. to say about Nairn is, um, you know, it's not so much about um, holding it against him, but rather not underestimating how influential the thesis was and how it became kind of um, even uh, common sense on a, among a broad swathe of the middle class. Um, you know, the middle class is liberal, you know, stretching even into Tory ranks, I think, Tory modernizers and on the left. I mean, I remember like, um, you know, when I was an undergraduate uh, at Oxford in my first year to uh, talking to people who were um, pro new labor and this was you know long before i'd ever heard of nair and anderson or anything like that um and people would be saying things look you know new labor aren't great but at least they're going to get rid of feudalism in britain um and this was 18 mm. 19 year olds you know and they were talking specifically about tenny bliss plans for reform of the house of lords which at the time obviously seemed kind of you know so tremendously ambitious and open-ended with all sorts of possibilities so I wouldn't, like I say, I wouldn't underestimate, it's not so much, you know, Nairn himself, but not to underestimate how, um, dare I say, even hegemonic um, the Nairn Anderson thesis became as part of British politics. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one one thing just to add, yeah, I mean, it, it, even though it might be kind of good to do some historiography of the English Revolution, but that's it's quite parochial, Phil. It's just like one small... One small country, we're global. No, no, th this is the one bit to... where Britain really does matter because it was first. Talking about Britain ah, today is kind really? of irrelevant. Oh, yeah. Of course, no, of course. Yeah. Talking talking about the yeah. about the English Revolution is super important. Talking about British modernization, yeah. British industrialization, super important. That was Britain at the leading edge of the world. Now, why do you hate just Brexit a small so island? much? Why do you hate Brexit? <laughs> no, but Brexit is a good a, a good opportunity for Britain to become a small little country and just uh, accept its its smallness, right? Why to accept and stop trying to be stop so trying much. to imagine itself to still be a great power. If Britain just re retreated from the world and just took care of itself, that would be good for Britain and good for the world. I do actually Alex. Agree with you, so. We <laughs> we have actually... a I'm sorry but we have a we have a bigger historical role than that. We have a world historical mission. So responsibility, can't, yeah. Mm. Responsibility can't can't fade into the background there. But no on this um point of the kind of the feudal holdovers critique taking like taking hold in the 70s. I wonder how um to what extent this kind of got resolved by the kind of by neoliberalism or by that kind of you know we're going to mod modernize in a specific way and that specific way is is not we're going to get rid of feudalism but trade union power and all of these kind of things which are slowing us down we need to kind of speed things up and and so i mean i'm i'm not i'm not saying that nen is responsible for neoliberalism or the nen anderson thesis led to to thatcher but i think there's a there's a you know there is a way in which this um like it, it does have a practical resolution of this new form of economic yeah, organization new labor. new labor 
I mean, it gave it laid the ground for new labor. You know, once the unions had been cleared out of the way, you could give a kind of a progressive gloss to new labor's modernization project. Yeah, but they I didn't don't... use Nairn Anderson in when they, you know, spoke with voters on the doorstep. But it was very much part of the, um, you know, the air that they breathe in terms of their vision of what they were going to do to the country. I think it's a bit too fanciful, dialectical to say Mrs. Thatcher was the first new Labour politician. So, but I'm, I think there are a few stages <laughs> in between. That's that. a little bit, no. Yeah. Let's uh, that's not what I said, but I think it's a good point and I, I will take it. Well, I think I think the point, Welcome. I mean, I, I, stuff that I'm working on with regard to Brazilianization is this idea that, you know, the bourgeoisie always wants to see itself as revolutionary, right? Um, but even having already overcome its feudal or either overcome or kind of incorporated the kind of feudalism that that lived behind it. And so it turns to new enemies. And so the way that bourgeois revolution happens after the 1970s is by taking on the old. What is the old? Social democracy, trade unions. Um, collective bargaining, all the rest of it, right? And I think that's how modernize, you know, under neoliberalism, modernization is not in some ways reforming capitalism, but it, but in many ways um, taking away the reforms that have been put in place, right? So it's attacking, uh, attacking trade union power and all the rest of it, attacking formal labor rights, because those are all, you know, old feudal forms which keep things in place. And what we need is flexibility. We need openness. We need, you know, uh, free flow of information, capital, all the rest of it. Um, and that's the way that, you know, quote unquote, bourgeois revolution is is carried out today or has been carried out over the past 30 years. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it, though. How come when we talk about Britain, we're being parochial and small islanders. And when you talk about Brazilianization, you're taught, you know, you're not subject to the same same criticism. Well, there's a specific reason for that, which is that Britain is always taken to be somehow at the vanguard of, of outsized relevance to the world. Um, and my argument is that it it isn't. Um, and and so I'm I'm pushing against what is the hegemonic view and the and the kind of tacit understanding but, within Britain and elsewhere that you know Britain is. Um, I think it's still a relevant. Good, yeah. it, it's a good example of the Nairn Anderson thesis. Because, you know, this is the point that the Nairn Anderson people, you know, though being British, they wanted to kind of get rid. They felt so bad about it and it oppressed them so much that they had to kind of look for, you know, kind of third world vanguard revolutions. And it's a similar thing today with somebody as quintessentially Hoxtonite as Alex that, you know, he tries to get away from being British. But the more that he struggles, the more that he just proves that he's British. You're a nair knight, you know, down to the tips of your fingers. I might. Um, your your, your I might references are about, so out of date. This is ridiculous. I might write a book about the in, the Englandization of the world. That's How a really that? good idea. <laughs> but the world has been Englandized. That was the fucking 19th century, dude. <laughs> nah, <laughs> Brexit happened. is the next wave. The Brexit, the England, yeah, Englandization of the world. Anyway, uh, let's let's move on. Because there's talk about fascism, and we have to get onto that. Uh, because we're talking about Italy, of course, the the other country of the future. Uh, episode two nine one, the right timeline, featuring Mattia Salvia. Um, one first point, uh, a jab at us, I think, from Eric Anderson, saying there's a point at which political analysis matches super edgy music analysis. So, for example, is Fugazi really punk? Is Big Black the original emo? Can Sonic Youth fans really be considered alternative? The constant hatred of wokery, where it's due, in spite of where it's not, is leaving me thinking Compact Mag might be a sure fit for these fellas. Um, 
I think that comment needs some parsing. But um, I think what he's saying is that to try to, const to constantly uh, attacking wokeism, even where it seems not to be obviously relevant, is an attempt to be kind of edgy and, um, you know, kind of uh, counterintuitive and co contrarian um, where it doesn't fit. Um, a point with which I, I generally agree. I, yeah, I mean, hmm. yeah, go on, George. I just took a different line. I was too just, I think I, I took the, the bait from Eric Anderson and took issue with the idea that Big Black are the original emo band. That seems completely un. <laughs> that, that's just not possible. That, but I'm not going to. We can talk, talk about Shellac some other time. But um, yeah, maybe maybe there is a valid point here that the, you know, you can you can sometimes certain things which annoy you start to take up the, the, all of your mental space and that's you shouldn't distort things by um <clears throat> just talking about the things that annoy you uh, put put them into context and they're not always relevant i would i mean i you know i guess uh i kind of echo what george said it's uh i suppose it's a professional hazard of the job if you're um you know kind of regularly engaging in public discourse that you're likely to um you know kind of uh, get uh, perhaps uh, to over to get carried away with wokeism and so on and um, to end up kind of in contrarian positions. Now that said, I would say, you know, I mean, um, there are worse places to be than Compact Magazine. It's, um, you know, like it's uh, got a tremendous kind of um, range in terms of the people. And, you know, there's some, um, there's been some excellent kind of articles written in there. Uh, not least the fact that they, you know, they're kind of opposed to um, blundering into nuclear war. So, but that aside, I mean, I'm not here to defend Compact specifically. That aside, you know, I can't, I mean, I take Eric, Eric Anderson's point. The only thing I'd say is though, or, you know, in our defense, or at least perhaps in my defense, is, um, you know, the woke kind of, the woke influence on public um, debate is very real. And it might be a source of frustration that it kind of occupies an outsized kind of presence um, due to the kind of domination of um, particular elites in public life in um, developed countries. So, you know, as frustrating as it is, it can't be wished away. Um, and the idea that you can kind of get around it or that you could get around it by kind of, you know, kind of engaging in Vox Populi style, um, you know, um, I don't know, um, exercises. I think, you know, that would be, uh, that would be, that would be to live under illusion as well. Yeah, no Vox. I think there's a difference. Only Vox Hoculi here. Um, oh, that's over. good. Huh? That's a good huh? one, actually. Yeah. You should like. You should. Take I should that have back a, I should have a YouTube channel own. called Vox Hoculi. Yeah, you're gonna have your. Uh, you're gonna have your. See you guys. I'm out of here. Called that. Yeah. Um. But all I was gonna say is that there's. I guess there is a difference between like getting annoyed and dismissing something, and more analytically putting it in its place as part of contemporary ideology. And. Yeah. I mean. You, you always hope to do the latter um but you know sometimes sometimes in the the thrust the cut and thrust of a discussion <laughs> you get carried away so yeah um yeah indeed i think yeah uh, i think it, if it feels too comfortable you know it's all too convenient that like aha it's the wokes that are doing it you know that, that would be a nice world to live in um where the wokes are uh you know the 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 alpha and omega of uh of all political problems um 
So uh, moving on and, and actually going into more depth on the question of kind of Italy and specifically a, a debate about fascism. So there's Carson H. and uh, Andrea kind of have two um, kind of complementary perspectives on this. And I think it's something that is worth uh, discussing in a bit more depth. And I think we'll probably that that'll be the end of this episode. So um, Carson H. says that uh, it's true that Maloney is not at the helm of a developed fascist movement or state apparatus. Um, and, you know, it lacks kind of some key things which would be necessary for classical fascism, such as national sovereignty, mass mobilization, the support of the military, an adequately unifying ideology and so on. But it's also true that Maloney herself, as well as many of her allies, are fascists in the sense that socialists are socialists in the absence of really existing socialism. Uh, socialists remain socialism in the, it's socialist in that case, and fascists re- would remain that in the absence of the conditions for fascism. Sure, those of us who consider ourselves socialists may only be able to honestly do so to the extent that we are currently able to meaningfully participate in anything resembling a working class movement towards socialism. But if we are gaining the kind of momentum, however modest, if we sorry, if we were gaining the kind of momentum, however modest, that figures like Maloney appear to be, would this still be the case? Uh, what if we had already accrued the more formidable energy of a Bolsonarismo, which is actually gaining some of the requisite capacities I listed above? Um, would that not make us socialists, really? Um, Carson asks. Uh, These rising political tendencies clearly have neo-fascist aspirations rooted in some form or another of ethnic and or religious chauvinism and the attendant dehumanization of certain groups cast as scapegoats. Just because it's early days and it's hard to tell where things will end up doesn't mean that we shouldn't take this stuff seriously. Why should we be so sure that something with uh, only family resemblance to fascism of of yesteryear couldn't possibly arise without a serious pre-existing threat to the power of capital, i.e. without an organized militant workers movement? What if neo-fascism or post-fascism or whatever George needs to call it so he doesn't have to worry about cynics on the internet calling him cringe is perfectly capable of emerging as a real social force without a strong opponent aside from some other block of capitalist interests? Uh, Can the direct continuity between Maloney's party and earlier iterations of Italian fascism really be merely superficial? Let's not miss the forest for the trees. Um, we're going to come on to this and open the discussion on this in just a second. I think it's worth reading Andrea's response directly to Carson because it continues along the same lines. Uh, so Andrea says, um, Andrea from uh, some of the northern Alpine valleys of Italy, um, as he attests to in, in his comment, I don't actually see why one shouldn't be calling pro-EU regionalist corporatist ideologies fascist or you know, pseudo-fascist, proto-fascist, whatever. If you actually read early uh, Lega intellectuals and other Italian regionalist parties' theorizations on what they idealize as the true nation in the early mid-90s, you would most likely define them as fascist nuts. They basically thought of the true original people of northern Italy as racially pure Celtic communities pitted against the Mediterranean mixed and contaminated lazy dark-haired people from the south who were at the bottom of the racial hierarchy. Statewide fascism had an all-Italian agenda you know, back in the, in the 20s and 30s. Um, so that strand of Italian racism was um, put, so this kind of regionalist strand of Italian racism was marginalized, but it never went away. 
That said, most people who voted Lega or voted for Meloni were and are not fascists. And actually, those parties had to abandon racialist ideologies to expand their appeal to wide enough electorate, as well as to get accepted by political gatekeepers. Uh, Andrea usefully draws our attention to the fact that the Italian president can veto the nomination of a minister or even the prime minister. This happened with Salvini's government when he, when he proposed a supposedly anti-EU finance minister. Uh, all this is to say that I agree with you that if you want to be a governing party, you can't be an anti-EU party. And yet, it does matter what you believe, especially when things are moving towards a kind of organic crisis. Even though there is no organized, let alone effective left wing in sight, especially in Italy, we are indeed going into an organic crisis. And as Carson H. says, if a left wing force were to emerge, the kind of beliefs this hard right has produced will become ever more relevant. Theoretically, there could be a Europe of the regions in which regionalist fascists uh, sits inside a generally right-wing but not fascist EU devoted towards subsidiarism, localist evolution, competitive localism, and so on. EU and fascist ideologies are not necessarily in contrast with each other, even if we are today quite far from uh, that being a reality. Just as state nationalism and localist pride uh, were not uh, in conflict with each other during fascism in Italy or Nazism in Germany. Um, so I just want to kind of summarize this into, into kind of some crucial questions. One, can we describe someone like Maloney as a fascist today? Um, and, and, and this is, this is from questioners who are very aware of the, the, the idea that, I mean, that we've discussed much on this podcast, it comes back from Trotsky and so on, that fascism only kind of really emerges and becomes a thing if it, as uh, as a way of kind of taking on working class movement and and and, uh, and you know annihilating communism, so they're aware of that definition. Um, the, the the people who are questioning us here, uh, but still asking, can we not call them fascist? The second point I think to to which is the second question which is raised by this is, should we not take them seriously? Right? Um, should we be so kind of dismissive? I guess of of these uh, far right forces. Um, and the third point is about whether a kind of regionalist, you know, regionist, regionalist, ethno racialist kind of ideologies um, might indeed coexist with within the EU or indeed whether kind of national um, national racisms and so on might exist within the configuration of a right wing EU, which allows it that kind of regional autonomy without um, without kind of demolishing the wider EU structure. So three big points there. Who wants to take a stab? George, take the first one. So I don't think either of the two, I mean, so, okay. The, the short answer is I, I still just, I think that that Trotsky definition, it's not the only person who uses it, but I think it, I think it is important because it centers the character and nature of class struggle that's going on in a society to define the political agents within that um, political conflict. So, I would, you know, there are other terms that you can use. And I think in some ways you are taking these movements seriously by saying this is what they are, not fascist with some qualifier or not, but instead calling them exclusionary nationalists or whatever it is. But what is the ideology that they're putting forward? Because I think it's too, I, I think it just, um, it's too much of a shortcut ultimately to say that they're fascist when that's not the that's not the situation of class um, struggle that that pertains. I think the the question though of, of like what what you do to, to take them seriously, the I think that um, Thomas Fatsy had a good um, piece in I think it was unheard, unheard on on this that Maloney is no radical. 
the idea is that within the constraints of the EU, what she's able to offer is uh, is very, um, very, very constrained. So there are some aspects, surely, that you want to identify with what some of the ideologues of her party or what even she said. But to take, I think this is the problem with using the word fascism is it kind of, it makes it more difficult to take that step back and assess the objective political opportunities and and constraints and all this sort of thing because it straight away puts particularly in the italian context this frame of like you know that straight away you need to um react in an emergency way which is not conducive to to analysis i don't know if that's going to be particularly um satisfying to carson or andrea but i will um i'm trying to write something on this like is it an organic or a conjunctural as Gramsci would talk about crisis and all this sort of stuff but this this means that there's will be quite a quite a number of months slash years to wait until I I give a response to these questions mm-hmm. far after everybody else has moved on considerably. Um, but yeah, take it you know, and you know you've got to accept sometimes you'll get called cringe um, by cynics online, but that's the um, it's an occupational hazard. But but I think the point is precisely that you should you have to accept being cringe and you're trying to avoid. Um, you, in, in avoiding the use of the word fascism, you're trying to avoid being called cringe because people, if you say fascism, people would be like, oh, that's so cringe, George. Um, oh, yeah. I, I'm not up to date with the contours of cringe clearly online. Um, but yeah, there is, I mean, I'm going to continue this. No, not no to fascism, but there is no fascism line. But if there were fascism, then no to it, but there isn't. So, George, uh, Phil, whatever. Yeah, I would. Um, I, I'm not. I suppose I'd step sideways slightly to. Um, I mean, I agree. I think with most of what George said, but I'd step sideways to or approach the question at a tangent, which is, you know, or well, at least the comments raised by the listeners at a tangent, which is, you know, aren't things bad enough as they are? You know, this idea that we kind of we're poised on some um, descent, and that any possibility of the left kind of or some kind of popular um, popular mass movement that would merit the support of the people of us and our listeners and people who like this, you know, the politics of this podcast, that it would be immediately kind of uh, met by an equivalent or even stronger counterstroke um, from the other side. You know, I just don't, I'm not sure, I, I don't accept it. And it seems to me, you know, dare I say, even defeatist. I mean, and isn't the situation bad enough? Uh, sorry, you can, you clarif- can you clarify that? I, I didn't well, um, quite so, understand. You know, the first part, isn't this, you know, like um, they talk, you know, they're preparing for energy rationing in industrialized societies in Western Europe this winter. And there's also like, you know, I think everyone seems to accept now that the war in Ukraine is shaping up to be the worst kind of um episode of nuclear brinkmanship since the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 1960s. And we have much worse leaders on both sides, right, in this context as well. That seems to me a pretty, you know, this is, it's a genuinely um, difficult and troubling state of affairs. And it's not, you know, it's not like we need to imagine that Maloney is um, a would-be fascist dictator in order to appreciate just how bad things are. And so I don't, you know, on this point about the, um, that the, it doesn't seem to me the case that any kind of um, strengthening of the left would meet this kind of equivalent counterstroke. On the contrary, it seems to me there's wide open political territory 
for any anybody who's willing to take it. And if you did have, say, an emer the emergence of a strong sovereigntist um, political group in Italy, I think both the right and the left would disintegrate. You know, there wouldn't be like um, they would be they would be completely outflanked. They would be disorganized and they would have no sense of how to respond because the entirety of the Italian political elite is entirely integrated into the governing consensus of the European Union. Anyone who stood for kind of mass democratic sovereignty, I think, would be able to um, easily disintegrate the existing political establishment. And this is more or less what happened in Britain with Brexit. I know Alex hates this, but it bears repeating and coming back to, right? I mean, Brexit disintegrated the most right-wing elements in Britain. You know, the most kind of organized right-wing elements in Britain. Brexit strengthened uh, popular support for immigration. It more or less did the reverse of everything that it was predicted to do by the left. Um, and so for all those, you know, I think it's a similar case, like in um, in countries that are in the European Union, there is wide open political territory. And that is partly because Maloney isn't a fascist. And on this point about a different kind of vision for what, how the EU might evolve, I don't think the Lega is ever going back to its um, kind of creepy um, sub-state regionalist origins. And I don't think, you know, there's any future for um, for those kinds of parties either. But we do have national populism as being kind of integrated now into the functioning and working of the European Union. Maloney's getting, you know, she kind of regularly talks to Draghi in order to have a line to Brussels and to get instructions. Um, and Orban is talking about the day when Eastern Europe will become a net contributor to the EU budget, which will give them more clout in council meetings and discussions in Brussels. So national populism is part now, right-wing national populism is part of the way the EU functions. So we're already at that situation that Andre, you know, we don't need to imagine kind of a future of small fascistoid regionalism. We're already at that stage with national populism, you know, which isn't fascist. Within the EU. Within the EU, exactly. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I agree um, with a lot of what Phil's just said, um, particularly the point about the open territory and the effects of, you know, with the effects that the, the demont the demonstrated effects of Brexit and um, you know what they had in terms of uh, demolishing the far right, uh, making people more open to immigration, even and so on. Um, as to the fascism question, I think you know the problem with this is that it always it devolves into a definitional debate, um, and you know you can. I, I think George is right to kind of put the question of class struggle at the center of it. There is an issue that we we'll have to, I guess, or hopefully not, but there might be the possibility that we have to find the correct terminology, invent the right terminology to describe these new far-right movements who uh, prey on crisis and accelerate the crisis. And I would very much see Bolsonaro as a case here and perhaps Maloney as well, depending on the way that government actually goes. Um, ones which practice anti-communism in many cases, right? Um, they practice anti, you know, they practice anti-communism in terms of their rhetoric, um, in terms of using that rhetoric as a justification for increasing, you know, authoritarianism, violence, and so on. Um, that's a that's a reality. Um, that's a reality already um, in Brazil and in many bits of the, you know, consider what, what Modi is doing in in India for that matter as well. So these maybe, you know, maybe this needs a new term. Is it fascist? I, you know, I. 
maybe we can do, we have to just let fascism lie and say, well, that was the particular experience of interwar Europe. Um, maybe there were some neo-fascisms, you know, people talk about whether the Argentinian uh, junta in the, in the 70s was fascist, you know, carrying out exterminations. But it, and, so and this so is on. what I'm saying. I mean, so like, this is what I'm saying. Isn't it bad enough? You know, Italy has had zero growth for like 20 years. Right. But I sorry, let me let me just I, I take your point about bad enough. I think that's correct. But I don't think that's what the question, because I think that would su- suggest that Carson and Andrea are saying, ah, but we we need to be kind of hysterical and emergency about this and call it fascist. I don't they're not no, saying no, that I they're trying to just analytically no, coolly. No, I, I get it. But I mean, this, you know, but I mean, I think, you know, so you can, can you know, if you try and deal with it head on then you end up in these endless kind of definitional and contextual discussions. And so this is why I'm trying to kind of, um, you know, like I say, approach the question from a tangent. Um, Things are, you know, like you don't need to imagine fascism or kind of an incipient or brewing or imminent fascism to appreciate just how bad things are. Yeah, I think that's true. They're pretty bad. They're pretty bad. The disaster has already happened. But I mean, anyway, I think it might be something to discuss. In In our book, actually, we talk about three you know, the three ideologies of the future. And we talk about how the left kind of folds itself into progressive neoliberalism in some ways at the last bastion of, of certain features of neoliberalism, uh, that the mainstream becomes effectively what Macron now represents in terms of um, leaning towards a more dirigiste sort of approach. John Boris Johnson's approach, you know, was part and parcel of that and so on. Um, it's unclear where that heads now with, with you know, with uh, trust and power in, in the UK, trying to do this kind of OG neoliberal Reaganism, Thatcherism uh, stuff. But that's obviously failing, and she, I think she won't last. Um, and then the third one, the third ideology of the future was precisely a far right um, Malthusian nationalist right, um, which tries to you know shut down the borders as anti-immigrant sees um, responds to the reality of low growth and low opportunities by um, closing the borders of political community, being ex- uh, exclusionary and saying, okay, only these are the good people and only these people have right and have right to um, the kind of social product that exists now ex- in increasingly limited social product. Um, and I think that that is something that we're seeing now. You know, Maloney is an example of that. Bolsonaro is certainly an, is an example of that. Um, perhaps Modi is as well, but India is growing. So it's maybe a different sort of case. But in any case, rather than me rambling on, I think... I think we do have to take these things seriously. I don't think it's it would be incorrect to say that the far right is rising, but and that isn't incompatible with with recognizing what has caused that. It, it's the it's the complete collapse of the neoliberal order, the lack of an alternative, the absence of a left, in fact, and the absence of sovereignty in the at least in the specific European case. Um, though you know in Brazil as well, the, the reality of dependency. Um, plays itself out as as well, and in, in you know it's also testament to the absence of of a kind of fulsome popular sovereignty. I think it all depends on what you mean by. I mean, again, you don't want to go through definitional uh, t- tunnels or whatever it would be, but there there was the thing in the AFT which showed that the experts judged uh, Liz Truss's government as a nine point four out of ten on the economic left right scale. But in the way that you just presented that there, Alex, Maloney would be to the right of trust. There's not a lot of space. I'm not sure she's to the right of... No, she's not to the right of trust. No, no, I think she'd probably well, more or less right. line slightly to the left. No, no. But but okay, but far right is a category here applying to the, the politics oh, as a whole. Oh my God, that this FT, is why, they, they, this that is FT why question, the discussion is so pointless. That FT thing was about the economic, an economic spectrum, purely about economic policy. Liz Truss amongst 
and uh, traditionally uh, the fascists are statist right exactly. so the idea of putting yeah but the idea then of putting the trust kind of uh further to the right than maloney because trust is more libertarian than i mean it, it's all nonsensical anyway because uh, maloney kind of buys into the eurozone right so i mean it's just these it goes to show you know the kind of the ft graph was kind of um you know ridiculous the survey I did of British academics shows how deluded British academics are, and this discussion is fruitless. I actually think it's fine trying to put economic policies on a spectrum, but maybe left and right wasn't the right terminology for it because uh, that doesn't entirely capture the reality of it. Or I think maybe left and right does make sense if you put it purely on this economic uh, scale, how much market, individual, blah, 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 versus collective uh, social on the other side. You know, um, the, 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 only, the only spectrum that matters is markets say it's good markets say it's bad i mean that's mm. it i mean you can have things which are on economic policies apparently but no i mean yeah anyway we, we we could um we can move on we should do something on trust trustonomics at some point that that we should um and yeah um hail mary hail mary hail mary neoliberalism that's what i'm calling it anyway um neoliberalism is collapsing and it's this kind of attempt like, hey let's play the old hits let's let's see if it works again um anyway um just to just to finish this off a couple of some lighter some lighter material um the responses to bunga zone 292 the second bunga zone we've done uh with the unbridled possibility collective i asked for shouts out for uh, you know things that you want to hear about about brazil that we could look into a bit further um so we had shots for uh, episodes on religion in brazil looking obviously at evangelism's rise but also afro brazilian religions cardicists spiritualism yes absolutely working on that um we'll definitely do an episode on that at some point soon um also why are there two communist parties in brazil i don't know if we're going to do that because that just becomes alphabet soup um but there's still the main pcb the main communist party kind of moscow aligned etc etc and then there's a pc the pc do the 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 communist party of brazil which has taken a whole number of turns and was uh hodgeist for a short while probably the only other party in the world which identified itself as hodgeist aligned with albania um but which now is really kind of soft center left and has its roots strongly in the student movement especially in the, in the students union as well as holding a governorship in the northeast anyway i don't know why i started doing this but there you go that's all we're doing this that's all that we're doing on this and so now i've nailed that um and then finally uh brazil's Brazilian elites reluctance to enable development, how it's the worst bourgeoisie in the world, et cetera. Yes, uh, definitely want to do that. And we'll try to do something on that, which will um, look, try to take broader lessons, not just about Brazil, but about um, development, its failure and so on. Um, and finally, we could, do, uh, we could do something on Brazil's preparation for the World Cup. We should um, start the World the 2014 Cup World Cup or the, or the, no. the forthcoming one in Qatar that the Brazil fourth, is going to win. One. Yeah, yeah. Heck we so. should do um, uh, world, a, a series of World Cup previews that Phil has to uh, be all <laughs> of them. Um, yes, though the final uh, comment, which was from episode 293 on Gorbachev, uh, Richard Roberts says, lol, shut up, George. Um, so I guess I that's think we can, all we can all endorse <laughs> one, right? Was that, was that related to a specific comment? Or was that I, I have no general... idea. I have no idea. It was completely decontextualized. Just lol, oh. shut up, George. Oh. Thanks. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it. <laughs> okay, everyone. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for all your questions and comments. As usual, apologies if we've missed yours. 
keep them coming. Um, we really enjoy doing these. Um, we hope you enjoyed listening to them. And we'll be back with another one. I guess we'll probably be just doing one more of these before the end of the year. Um, we'll have to check the calendar. Um, check the calendar, as Phil loves to say. Anyway, that's it from us for now. <laughs> Catch you later. Bye-bye.